Welcome back to another edition of the Unofficial Guide Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Lantesta, and this is our first episode for April 2016. And I know it's April 1st, and we will all be April Fools on this episode. Joining me in the tomfoolery, one Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? I'm a fool for love. <laughs> fool for many things, actually. <laughs> Donuts. I set the bar very low for foolishness, so... All right, Jim, before we get started on today's topic, which, by the way, is the history of FastPass, a mm-hmm. listener-suggested topic, uh, let's talk a little bit about what's happened in the world of Disney in the last couple of days since we last recorded. Number one, a new morning event titled Fantasyland Fun Before the Park Opens is going to happen in the Magic Kingdom. This is a $70 event. Starts at 7.45 a.m., I believe. Gets you access to Peter Pan, Seven Dwarves Mine Train, and the Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, plus a breakfast at Pinocchio Village House. $70, something like that? What do you think, Jim? The theme of the show seems to be foolishness. <laughs> between the surge pricing, between the premium parking, between $150 Disney Nights thing, this is getting gratuitous. They don't let any time go by before another one of these is introduced. Weren't you just saying well, we've got a record number of Mickey's not-so-scary Halloween parties coming this year? Yeah, so there are uh, 29 party nights for 2016. That's over September, October. Begins September 2nd. The last one is Halloween, October 31st. So basically every other day during the months, there will be a party. That's up from a record of 25 mm-hmm. in 2016. Pricing and the dates on which they go on sale aren't, aren't yet done. But yeah, it's a record. It's a record to 29. Every other day, there'll be a party, which means that the Magic Kingdom is going to close at 7 p.m. every other day for this. Mm, I expect at this point, we are just days away from the new security crawls into your room at three o'clock in the morning and goes through your pocket initiative. <laughs> this is just getting ridiculous. Don't get me wrong. They, they deliver top quality entertainment yeah. that's beautifully themed environments. But the mantra is, and it's going to cost you. You want to get in early. Oh, you want to stay late. The catchphrase for, at Disney shouldn't be, but it'll cost you. Right. Again, again, unless you can work magic dreams and wonder somewhere in there. (laughs) It's the marketing policy. I'm reasonably okay with this morning thing. Number one, only three attractions are open and they can't put that many people in the park that early. Here's why. So right now the food is limited to, it's actually a pretty decent buffet. It's uh, all you can eat eggs and potatoes and sort of the standard Disney breakfast fare, but they're doing it at Pinocchio Village House. And I believe Mm -hmm. the Pinocchio Village House capacity is only like 400 people. Mm -hmm. So it's not like they can sell 4,000 tickets because nobody would ever eat, right? Most people would never eat. So if they limit it to, you know, a few hundred, maybe several hundred people, and they're able to feed them and they get them through those three attractions. By the time the rest of the park opens at 9 a.m., those people will be reasonably well dispersed. It'll be only a minor blip to everyone else who's coming into the park. But I could definitely see if they sold, and this is just a hypothetical, if they sold 4,000 tickets. If I was a Disney Resort guest and I showed up at 9 a.m., especially if I'm staying at the Grand Floridian and I'm paying $1,000 a night, and I showed up and there are already 4,000 people in the park because they paid $70 more and they were staying off site, I would be upset. But I think the numbers here are going to be low enough that it's not going to be that big of an impact to people. The thing we we should all watch for is if they expand the dining offerings from like Pinocchio Village House to like everything in Fantasyland, including Beard Guest, because then at that point, you know, it's a lot more people. I could easily see, Len, them doing 
a frontier land version of this. Oh, and Diamond Horseshoe or something like that? Yeah, and you know, then you give people the option of doing Mansion, Splash, and Big Thunder. Mm-hmm. And you could double up. Hall of Presidents, Liberty Bell Road. Well, you know, look, it's early <laughs> in the morning. You're already, you know, it's like, welcome to the Hall of Presidents, and here's your black coffee. <laughs> I don't know. The other thing that comes to mind here is that the late, great John Panette used to do a thing about how people would go to Las Vegas and lose all their money, but they'd try to make it back at the buffet. <laughs> Come on, kids. Got to eat $70 worth of scrambled eggs. <laughs> Nothing to me says an enjoyable Central Florida experience like you know, loading up on too much breakfast and hiking around a park. That's the other thing. I mean, it's essentially a carbon protein loaded breakfast. It's going to be 90 degrees out by the time you're done there. All right. Well, we'll see, we'll see what happens with that. So let's get into our topic today. This is, a, again, a listener suggestion. Just to give credit here, it was Justin Jones who tweeted back a day or so ago that if you still need an idea for a show, I'd love to hear about the history of FastPass. So I reached out to Len and said, could we maybe pursue this? Because what's really fun about drilling down into FastPass is, Len, your name comes up all the time. Does it really? Um, <laughs> That's kind yeah. of awesome, actually. <laughs> Prior to FastPass, the only way to sort of beat the system was the unofficial guide. In a weird sort of way, you plowed the road. You were the guy who put together the algorithms and figured out the various plans for people maximizing their time in the parks. So just to be clear, this is the first time I'm hearing this. We didn't coordinate this ahead of time. This is actually kind of fun. It's just kind of cool because in the middle of 1998, when they're looking for somebody to talk about, well, how does the system work and how's it going to impact? They seem to default to calling you. And so you're popping up in all the coverage during this period. That's awesome. Just sort of jump into it. Look, lines have been an issue that people going to Disney theme parks have dealt with since as far back as July 17th, 1955. Of course, some of that was because of there were only supposed to be ten to 15,000 people at that grand opening event. and They were counterfeit tickets sold. The invitation said you and your party. And in fact, in, in <laughs> Todd James Pierce's great book, Three Years in Wonderland, he actually describes at one point a guy shows up with a busload of people and he has an invitation that says, me and my party. Hey, it's my hey. party. They all got in. The weird thing is early, early on at Disneyland, sometimes they'd artificially create a long line. C.V. Wood, uh, the first president of Disneyland, he used to tell the guys who ran the Jungle Cruise, the way we're wired as animals is that if we see a line, we're like interested and we'll get on that line. So mm-hmm. I know we have a field of 12 boats and the ride's built so that eight boats can be on it at any one time. But in the morning, I want you to run just four boats. We've lowered the capacity that'll build the line. And as people walk into the park, they'll go, ooh, look at the line. Why is there a line? I want to get on that. Must be popular. I should do it. No, that's it exactly. So to jump ahead here, that over the first 15 years that Disneyland was up and running, there was really a learning curve when it came to the lines. What happened when Disneyland opened Pirates in in March 18th, 1967? Now, this e-ticket attraction was hugely popular from the get-go. And what was really great is it had an immense capacity. I mean, they could cram 22 people in each of those boats. Because they could do that and just hump them through that huge groups through uh, the load offload area, 
they could get 3,400 people an hour through that attraction. Wow, I didn't know it was that, it was that high. I, I've always assumed 3,000, but that's 10% better than that. But at the same time, Len, you of all people know that busy summer day at Disneyland, where the park opens at 8 o'clock in the morning and stays open until midnight, mm-hmm. even running at peak efficiency, and that means you load every single boat that comes through with it, you know, those 22 people, that's still only 54,400 people. Yeah, there's more people than that in the park. On a day when you have 75,000 people in the park, that means 20,000 people don't get to experience pirates, which is at that point was the ride. Mm-hmm. And th- this is actually one of the reasons that Haunted Mansion, which, you know, remember, they'd started building it in 63 and then pulled everybody off of that to go do the four rides for the 64, 65 New York World's Fair. Mm-hmm. That was actually one of the reasons the project suddenly like we suddenly have these giant crowds mm-hmm. in New Orleans Square and they're overwhelming the shops, they're overwhelming the restaurants. We got to do something. So, okay, we'll build another e-ticket like 500 feet away and that'll pull people over and that'll take right. the heat off pirates. But what actually turned out to happen because Haunted Mansion actually had lower capacity Right. Than pirates. Uh, it's an Omnimover, but it's probably only like, what, 2,000, something like that, 2,200? For the, that first summer, they were getting 2,600 people an hour. Okay. All right. So close enough. Okay. So you have 2,600 people versus 3,400 people an hour. Mm-hmm. And so people are there with their e-ticket, and they look like, oh, look at the line for Haunted Mansion. Like, wow, that's really learned. All right. Where's the closest e-ticket? Oh, pirates. pirates. <laughs> so the line got longer. <laughs> oh, because Haunted Mansion was the new ride. People are like, oh, well, I'll go on pirates because it's great. So three years later, with the hope that let's build something that draws them away. March of 1972, they opened Country Bear. They build it deliberately to have a huge capacity. We've talked about this. Now, so this is interesting, though, Jim. So in the 70s, then, yep. their solution to the problem of longer lines is mm-hmm. building more attractions. Yep. And that's an admirable philosophy, mm-hmm. right? It's what you should do in, in lots of cases. Mm-hmm. The problem is, I'm sure Disney eventually figures this out in the 80s or the 90s, people in line aren't spending money in restaurants or shops. That's it, Exactly. To finesse, when Country Bear didn't do the job, the very next e-ticket that they built at Disneyland turned out to be Space Mountain with the notion of put it on the exact opposite side of the park with the hope that, okay, even if people who are with their e-tickets going, okay, they've just gotten off of Mansion or they've just gotten off of Pirates, they're looking for their next e-ticket to experience, mm-hmm. they will at least have to traverse the bulk of the park, which means they walk by shops, they walk by restaurants. It's also a good strategy because it, if you put the major attractions in opposite sides of the park, mm-hmm. you disperse the crowds more evenly. So not only do they walk past more shops and restaurants, but mm-hmm. the fact that they have to walk itself is a worthy goal. Oh, I agree. I agree. But you could build additional capacity. Mm-hmm. You, you can build these big rides. But the hard reality is you don't build a church just for Easter Sunday. I'm so going to start using that line. You design a theme park and you need the queues to service these attractions and you need the bathrooms for the number of people who are in the park, the gift shop that you have to exit to and the restaurant that's across the street. What you do is you build your park with the 90th percentile in mind, thinking that- That's exactly what I was thinking, yeah. That uh, that 90% of the time you'll be fine. Nine out of 10 days you're operating this park you have the capacity, you're set to operate, and yeah, there will be the holiday period. There'll be summer tough days, but you're ready to handle it 90% of the time. Okay. So one month, five weeks out of the year, things Mm -hmm. will be kind of crazy, but everyone will understand that. Or you can pull out, I mean, lots of parks pull out things like additional live entertainment bands and things like that. And that's the packed park compensation plan, Mm -hmm. right? All right. So so we go through the 70s, we go through the 80s. 
when does Disney actually get the idea for maybe we need a ride reservation system here? What generates that? One of the key events that sort of really started the ball rolling in that direction was when Disney actually stepped away from ticket books to passports. Really? At least when you had the tickets, the, the A through E ticket system, people mm-hmm. would come into the park and go, all right, I've used all my E's, let me use my D's. So they dispersed to lesser known attractions in the park. Ah, the ticket books itself, themselves were doing it. Suddenly there was this interest that they began offering passports to magic. Oh, and then, it, and then it's an all-you-can-eat model. So there it's like, well, I, I'm not going to fill up on the salad. I'm going to do nothing but eat crab legs for the rest of the day. And so that's, again, you suddenly have people who do nothing but ride E tickets all day. <sighs> Okay, okay. Initially, the Imagineers, as they began building the next generation of e-tickets, it's like, okay. So the way to solve this issue is we lengthen the queues and we make them tell stories. And in a weird sort of way, this is different from, say, the scene ones that we've seen being built at Walt Disney World. Mm-hmm. In some cases, these are a half mile long queues. That's Collie River Rapids, but... Uh... <laughs> no, that's it exactly. The first of these opened in April of 1992 at your Disneyland. I mean, if anyone who's done that version of Pirates of the Caribbean, you're entering a fort where it's clear there's been this battle right. between the townspeople and the pirates to gain access to it. You keep moving past these barricades that have been blown through or booby traps that have been dismantled. Oh, I forgot about that queue. Yeah, that's that's huge. And on the heels of that, you know, here comes in March of 1995, we have the queue that they built at Disneyland for Indiana Jones Adventure. That's interesting because most Disneyland queues are outdoors, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Mild weather most of the year. They don't have to worry about rain, things like that. But this is a largely, well, it's sort of indoor-outdoor, right? You do have a, give sort of an outside back and forth thing. One of the reasons why this queue had to be built the way it was built is that in order to accommodate the enhanced motion vehicle dark ride that they wanted to build, they needed a 50,000 square foot show building. And the only way to build that was actually outside the berm. So you actually had to move people from literally the edge of the Jungle Cruise out mm-hmm. to where the Eeyore portion of the parking lot used to be. And uh, that meant that, you know, it, this is a half mile long queue. And the Imagineers were looking at the opening of Vertigo's of the Lost Ark, and here's Indy going through a temple, and it has all sorts of booby traps and that sort of thing. It's like, all right, let's just do that. Let's cover the fact that it's a half mile of walking by these dark chambers with spikes that come down from the ceilings and bats and there's a code in uh, in the hieroglyphics in the in the walls right they used to give out cards i don't know if they did anymore there was supposedly enough there to entertain yourself that you weren't as so keenly aware that this is an hour two hours of my time True story, Jim. I was there the week it opened with my sister. The longest I've ever waited at a Disney attraction, four hours, oh. was for Indian Jones Temple Gym. Wow. Four hours. Yes. And then after you got off the attraction, just moving your pancreas back to where it was supposed to be must have taken at least I think three. I was done for the day after that. I'm like, yeah, the hell with this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm done. <laughs> I think it actually took longer than the flight out. <laughs> I remember standing in line. I mean, I remember, mm-hmm. you know, seeing it and... And everyone was super excited, so that kind of helped. If you're there for the opening of something, you will tough it out. It's the day guest who's six or eight months later who's like, how long? That's what they did in Paris. 
That's what they did it in Anaheim. In in Orlando, we talked about this the last show, that this is where they launched the e-ticket nights. Mm-hmm. You can get into the kingdom after we've closed for the night for three hours. And again, at the price point they were offering it back then, it, where it was $15 for adults uh, with tax bumps that up closer to 20 and kids were 10 with tax 15. That sure. was still, still a sweet deal. When it came right down to it, the number one complaint about the Disney parks, again, with the lions and people like just were desperate to find ways to beat them. So I have to ask, when did you decide to do the unofficial guide and, and how did this come about? Bob actually started it in 86. Mm-hmm. He took his kids to the Magic Kingdom in Epcot, waited in super long lines all day. I think he said he saw like three or four attractions or five or whatever. Everyone was hot. Everyone was cranky. Left the Magic Kingdom, went to Epcot the next day, did exactly the same thing. Only saw four or five things and decided that there had to be a better way. And the funny thing was he was teaching operations research at a university in Kentucky at the time Mm -hmm. and figured it, it was a queuing problem. So he contacted a guy at MIT, Dick Larson, who was a professor of queuing theory, still there actually, and helped uh, the two of them worked on a model. Actually, true story, Bob originally modeled it in Excel. <laughs> I know, right? But it worked, right? So he he looked at things like, you know, how many boats are running on Splash Mountain and how many cars are running on Space Mountain and what's the bulking time? Like how long will people wait for certain attractions and when will they give up? Mm-hmm. So for rides like the Mad Tea Party. People will not wait five hours in line for that. But something mm-hmm. like Soren, we've actually seen wait times over 300 minutes at Soren. And what that, what that means is, you know, when the wait time is five hours, there are still people who look at that sign and say, yeah, this is worth the next five hours of my life. I'm going to get in line. And you know, the, lot, the wait keeps going up. So Bob did this. He developed the model over, uh, I guess, the next five or six years. He had started creating the step-by-step touring plans in the back of the unofficial guide. So the first unofficial guide I bought was 95. Mm-hmm. I was in the middle of my undergrad degree in computer science. And the first tip I ever sent Bob by mail was, I was the one that suggested eating lunch in Epcot restaurants instead of dinner because it was cheaper. And technically, I don't think I've ever said this before, but the idea came from my twin sister, Linda. Mm-hmm. I took credit for it. Whatever. We've all moved past that, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> so in 95 and 96, I actually used the touring plans and they worked. Mm-hmm. And I was really impressed with them. So in 97, went with my sister to the studios. We did not have an unofficial guide. Uh, I guess we thought we knew it. Ended up waiting two hours in line for the great movie ride. When I talk about this, I can still feel the sun on the back of my neck. Uh, it hurt that much. Uh, I thought there's got to be a better way than this. I uh, went back, looked at Bob's stuff, talked to my advisors in graduate school. I was just getting into graduate school. And I said, you know, I want to I want to create software that minimizes your wait in line at theme parks. And it turns out to be an incredibly complicated scheduling problem. So we did that. Little did I know that while I was in graduate school, I think is when Disney actually launched Fastbacks. <laughs> so the problem of minimizing your wait in line is, is what's called a traveling salesman problem. But what Fastpass does is it complicates it because if you think of Fastpass as a time window, right? A time at which you can get in and make things easier. It's like telling a delivery guy, like for UPS or FedEx, you can deliver my package, but I'm only going to be home between 12 and one or four and five or seven and eight, mm-hmm. which essentially is what FastPass is, right? Time windows. Mm-hmm. So when we when Disney launched it, we had to figure out a number of things. One, what was this going to do to the standby line? Mm-hmm. And then number two, how are we going to put this in the software? So that was fairly cool. But I'm getting ahead of myself, Jim. So what uh, what eventually inside Disney made them say, you know what, 
a virtual queuing system like Fastpass is the way to go. How did how did they end up with that? I can answer that question in two words. Bruce Laval. I, I got to tell you, Justin, we really went the extra mile for this podcast. You know, when it came time to talk about the development and history of Fastpass, I actually went to the guy. Now, Len will tell you if you get you pull the patent for Fastpass, yep. Bruce is one of the two people listed on the patent. He wrote this code. I'm actually surprised that you got to talk to him. Well, so am I. <laughs> I hate to say this, but I was doing the research on Saturday, and and in the middle of this, there's a number of papers that they filed after the fact, and sure enough, deep down in the note were contact points. It's sort of like, he couldn't possibly still be available through AOL, and sure enough. (laughs) But he was. He was. was. really? Yeah. I I totally would have sent him fan mail. Yeah, and I... I sent him a note, and he reached back, and we spent a wonderful half hour on the phone. So you talked to the guy that invented FastPass. And it was yeah, great because I had awesome. done my homework. In fact, there's this wonderful story. Bruce studied computer simulation. He got his BS in industrial engineering at 69 and his MBA, which mostly keyed off a computer simulation from the University of Florida in 1971. So where does he go to work? The Walt Disney Company. Sure. And this was the thing that really put... Bruce on the map at Disney. So he's a young guy just starting out the company, right? Yep. And so managers reach out to him and go, okay, we've just opened the Walt Disney World Resort. We've got our monorail system. We have five trains. We need to justify to management back in Burbank the cost of bringing a six train in because we need the capacity. We have a lot of people coming. We're going to need that six train. So, Bruce, we need you to do the simulation so we can then have the data that backs this up and schlep it back to California and get our six train. So, Mm -hmm. So Bruce starts, pulls all the information, doing the coding, starts running the simulations, and it's like, that can't be right. <laughs> he checks all his numbers, checks all his facts, rewrites the code, runs a simulation again, and is like, oh, no. And eventually, he trusts what he's done enough that he sits down with management and says, okay, here's the deal. You know what's better than six monorails? <laughs> no, that's exactly four monorails. In fact, he tells them they, in order to achieve peak efficiency, they yeah. actually have to pull the fifth monorail off of the resort loop. Because it turns out that the trains are designed to go 35 miles an hour, but the way the operating system is written, if a train gets within a certain amount of distance of another train, they slow down for safety reasons. Mm -hmm. And as a direct result, that lowers the capacity. Look, when you have a fifth train in the system, you actually start to lose capacity. And nobody believed him. So Bruce was like, this is what your tally should be. Let's pick a day and let's do it with four trains. And Bruce stood there all day and would give them the, okay, this is how many you will have done this hour. This is how many you've done that hour. He was so on the nose that going forward, he became the guy. If we're doing a new restaurant, we're doing a new resort, we're doing a new ride, Bruce is going to tell us what our capacity is going to be, what we need. And he became such a big part of the organization. 1976, he's on the Epcot development team. When the park opened in 82, the company had so begun to trust what he said and what he thought. He was made general manager of that park. Was he really? 
Yep. Boy, you want to talk about some some huge capacity rides at Epcot. Jeez. Very soon, uh, we'll be doing some more really in-depth stuff for Epcot. I've come across some amazing stories. We, I thought we'd covered that park. I just discovered we just scratched the surface. But oh, awesome. Back to Bruce's career. So on the heels of Epcot, he oversaw all of the development of Disney MGM. He was the director of project development on that. Uh, when it opened, he's made the VP of that park. He eventually winds up in charge of all of the Orlando parks and ends up in charge of all Walt Disney World operations. Wow. This is a guy who knows the parks backwards and forwards. And just like Bob Salinger, just like you, that he's just looking at the deal breaker for Disney World. And this is a direct quote. If people come for eight, nine hours, they're spending three and four hours in line and they're yep. just getting less value for their day. And the problem with when people don't feel like they're getting a, a value, they don't come back. Yep. That's really how Bruce was looking at this. The problem, as far as he saw it, this was a guest retention problem. This wasn't necessarily, let's deal with the line. If we make them wait in too many lines, if we make them wait in long lines, that's what they tell their friends at home. Yep. That's a remarkable insight. It's, it's accurate, but it's a remarkable for somebody to actually say that. You know, Bruce is, is one of those guys. In fact, he was talking about prior to FastPass, they actually tried very quietly, they rolled out a ride reservation system. And he said, it flat out, it didn't work. Really? The hard reality of how people experience a Disney park just bit them in the butt. You can have a ride reservation, but you're on the wrong side of the park and the parade starts. Yep. Or your lunch runs too long. And people would just wind up missing their reservation time and get frustrated. And mm-hmm. to his way of thinking, there had to be another way. All right, it's 1997. Bruce Mm -hmm. is on a skiing vacation and he's standing there at the chairlift and he looks over and here's the single rider line. For those of you who have never been skiing, I mean, the whole point of the single rider line is you have like a four person chairlift. Mm -hmm. And so say a couple gets on so you can pull two people out of the single rider line, send them up the mountain. Groups of three and one, right? Yeah. Because you can do that, that means your chairlift operates at peak efficiency. 100% capacity all the time. And Bruce is looking at the single rider line and suddenly has the aha moment. It's like, oh my God, I've been looking at the lines all wrong. In order for the equivalent of ride reservation system to work, the main line for the attraction has to be people who booked in advance. So two lines. But here's the genius. The actual line, the line that we've always stood in, then becomes your standby line. When you have those gaps, when you have those holes, you pull from that line. Oh, I get it. Oh, that's an interesting way of looking at it. Yeah, that then becomes the filler line, not the line. That's an insight. There you go. But now, again, he has to convince Disney management to do this. So, (laughs) (laughs) What was that like? (laughs) Well, he, he got lucky. Well, okay, at this point, he's management, so he actually has a bigger voice than... He does, he does. But at the same time, this is a lot of software. This is a lot of hardware that that would be involved in this. So it's like... Oh, it's a lot of industrial engineers. I mean, you have to start simulating how long, you know, how much capacity you dedicate to the ride and what's it going to do to get satisfaction. I mean, it's just the the idea is the easy part, right? (laughs) No, that's it exactly. So here, he finally gets him to do a field test. And so it's April of 1998, Animal Kingdom opens. Yep. That summer, very quietly in this same theme park, Bruce gets Disney to run a t- test, which involves a control group that's using the rough form of FastPass and a control group. Mm-hmm. And at this point, this isn't called FastPass. This is virtual queuing. So this is how it broke down. People were recruited just inside the Animal Kingdom entrance. The control group 
is handed a paper diary and is told to note the exact time they enter each attraction mm-hmm. and then the time that they then were able to ride that attraction. Okay. They were also asked to note when they entered and exit any of Animal Kingdom's restaurants and shops. And in short, mm-hmm. Disney was looking for this ridiculously detailed breakdown of how these people spent their day in that theme park. I think I actually spoke to someone who did one of these things. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Once they turned in their diary at the end of the day at guest relations, I guess every member of the party was given the equivalent of 50 or 60 Disney dollars, or there was compensation for taking part in this thing. But where it got interesting was the second group of guests. They were given the exact same paper diary. They were told to keep track of their day. But the key difference was, in addition to the diary, they were given a card that they were supposed to show to any cast member who was manning the entrance of the Animal Kingdom rider show that they were looking to get into. Mm-hmm. And as soon as the cast member was shown that card, they were supposed to pull out a pad that they had. And the you know, first thing they do is they look over and calculate what the actual wait time was, that if this family got in the queue at this point, when they'd actually be able to ride. And mm-hmm. then they, they filled out the slip and then headed back to the, the group holding the card. And so let's say Countdown to Extinction at that point had a 40 minute wait. So they're holding the slip of paper, which says, come back in 40 minutes. This is exactly how the DAS system works today. Really? It's exactly how it works today. Yeah, go ahead. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so they have 40 minutes to kill in, in Dino Land. But as soon as the 40 minutes is up, they go to the back door of the attraction. Yep. That's where they've been directed to. A cast member is waiting there to march them at top speed to the load-unload area. They're loaded yep. on the very next vehicle. In the DAS system today, you should go through the uh, the fast bus queue, but exact same idea. I think in the DAS system, if you showed up at like Dinosaur, which is the current version of Countdown mm-hmm. Extinction, the wait time is 40 minutes. I think they tell you to come back in whatever the wait time is minus 10 minutes. So mm-hmm. they tell you to, if the wait is 40, they tell you to come back in 30. The exact same idea. And it's all paper-based. That's yeah. super interesting. Wow. See, good ideas never fade away, man. Well- <laughs> They did this a number of times over the summer of 98, and they didn't do this test at Animal Kingdom because it was the first Disney World theme park with Ethernet capabilities. It was actually done because this was the park that at that time had the fewest number of ride shows and attractions. It just made it easier to stage this sort of test. Yeah, it's less complicated. I totally get it. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, they collect the diaries from both groups, and then they wait for four weeks. And at this point, they actually call these people at home and do an extensive phone oh. interview with them. Okay. And uh, the results were stunning, Len. The people who've been able to take advantage of this first rough form of fast pass were actually chomping at the bit to get back to Disney World. Were they really? Yeah, this is actually why FastPass exists at all. Bruce was able to go back to Disney management and say, these people are basically saying, if this is the future of the Disney theme parks, they want go to go back to the resort right away. They've spent the past four weeks talking to friends and family members about how little time they spent in line when they visited Animal Kingdom and how they really wish that this very same system was in place at the other three Disney World theme parks. Wow. Everybody thinks that Disney created this system because they were looking to cut the lines. And it's like, no, this is about people being able to go back and, oh, man, this the last vacation. I was able to cut out three and four lines during my trip. We did so much more. This is wonderful system. 
You know what's great? I've never I've never heard the story, but none of us have ever heard the story, Jim, and, it, and you found it by calling the dude that invented it. <laughs> Half of this job is knowing a who to call, b knowing when to shut up. Just let them tell the story. No one has ever mentioned, you know, in, in all the official stuff, like yeah, it's a way to get you to come back, you know, and be more satisfied. It was all based like, you know, now you can wait less in line, but there was never a subtext of. And you'll tell your friends and you'll come back more. Just to continue to push the timeline along here, April of 99, FastPass is being tested at Disneyland. They do it out there for guests who are looking to experience Space Mountain. The exact same week, they're back at, in Orlando doing a test at both the Magic Kingdom and Animal Kingdom. Mm-hmm. These are both seen as huge successes, which is why by fall of that same year, FastPass is rolled out as one of the key elements for Walt Disney World's Millennium Celebration. Sure. Not that that there weren't hiccups. There was obviously a learning curve. I mean, if you remember going to the parks during that period, as you came into the park, you were handed your guide map, you were handed your show schedule, and a separate leaflet that explained FastPass because it was such a new concept. A lot of people initially didn't read it and got angry because they thought this was something they were supposed to pay for. It's a great idea. Throughout its entire existence, and I'm sure Mm -hmm. Bruce will tell you this, the bane of FastPass Mm -hmm. was that most people never figured out fully how it worked. It wasn't till August of 2003 that the first attraction that had actually been designed to accommodate FastPass was built. You had these sort of jury rig systems where the fast yeah. pass line would be next to the, the standby line. And for some attractions, it works out fairly well. Space Mountain, mm-hmm. you can allocate half the capacity of the ride mm-hmm. to fast pass. That's pretty easy. But for things with a single queue, like Peter Pan or the Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, yeah, they essentially had to retrofit it. And I think at some point, people were going in through the exits. Was that it? Yeah. yeah. And people would just get upset because they were perceiving that they're standing on the standby line. And these people are jumping the line. And there were fist fights. There were yelling matches. Was it really? Wow. Yeah. But eventually it sorted itself out. The Disney fan community being the Disney fan community, they began to game the system. They actually, oh, yeah. I remember there used to be websites where they explained that there were fast pass systems that weren't actually tied into the other fast pass. disconnected systems, right? Yeah. These are machines that which you could game the rules by getting multiple fast passes at the same time. And mm. I guess before we explain that, we have to say that there were actually rules about how you could get fast passes, right? The way Bruce had built the system was that you weren't allowed after you got a fast pass. There was a two hour window where you had to wait before getting your next fast pass. I remember this. So it was either the return time of the fast pass or two hours, whichever came first. Mm-hmm. So if you're fast pass, let's say you showed up at 9 a.m. at Space Mountain, you got a fast pass. It was good at 9.30. Mm-hmm. Then as soon as 9.30 hit, you could get a fast pass again. But if you arrived at noon and your fast pass for Space Mountain wasn't until 4 p.m., you'd have to wait the two hours, the two-hour minimum, so until 2 o'clock, to get another fast pass. Yeah. Again, eventually, they, they began finessing the system. You may remember the early fast passes just gave you return time. Mm-hmm. The latter fast passes would actually suggest an attraction that was in the immediate vicinity that you could go to. Right. It was actually used to put people in the virtual queues, but also make a suggestion about where you could go, what you could do, how better you could spend your time in the park. Right. Sometimes when you got a fast pass, let's say you were at, I remember when Mickey's PhilharMagic first came out, Mm -hmm. it would give you a bonus fast pass for something like Carousel of Progress. Yeah. 
And essentially what they're trying to do there is not only lower your weight in line at Philhar Magic, but to get you to go to another part of the park. Mm-hmm. And again, crowd distribution. It was sort of like pre-FastPass Plus. This is where it got kind of interesting by, by chat with Bruce. He was talking about the fact that the whole point of FastPass was to get people on attractions with the longest lines, to save them the right. time from standing in that line. And they were, they were all headliners, right? So the, let's, let's talk about the original lineup. The original lineup didn't include things like Dumbo, Pirates of the Caribbean, because these things have FastPass Plus now, but they didn't have yeah. FastPass then. He flat out said, it's like, look, we didn't need fast passes for half hour long lines. Yeah, that was actually the rule that we came up with in the unofficial guide that anything under 30 minutes doesn't need fast pass. Remember, you had to walk to the machine to get the fast pass. Yeah. Then yeah. you had to walk back where you were. Then you had to walk back two hours later or whatever to actually get on the ride. So, all that walking, 30 minutes. Bruce, he retired in 2001, basically did fast pass and, and you know, that was this huge success and went out on top. Mm-hmm. Uh, he sort of alluded to my Disney experience and FastPass Plus is you don't need your FastPass Plus booked months in advance for Carousel of Progress. <laughs> Bruce is a guy who arrives at the resort in 71, just as Disney World was opening up. And yeah. there's a version of how he thinks these resorts and these parks should run. And I think the fact that Disney has buried the needle in such an overly regimented way, again, yeah. for, for a lot of reasons, let's be honest. I mean, you know, the, one of the reasons that they do this is they can know weeks and months in advance about what they need to do for staffing levels at the park or how long yeah. they need to keep a particular theme park open for the day. I mean, it, it works for them. It's not necessarily for the guest benefit. That's one of the big differences between FastPass and FastPass Plus. Bruce did FastPass to enhance the guest experience. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. FastPass Plus is definitely distributed guests throughout the park, but I think we all know that the subtext of FastPass Plus is it benefits the Disney parks as least as much as it benefits the guests and maybe more so. So two completely different things. My favorite moments of getting Bruce on the phone was I just I flat out asked him, what makes you proudest about having worked on this project? And he said, it actually has nothing to do with Disney. It's the fact that because people went to a Disney theme park and experienced this, they then walked out into the world and expected it everywhere else. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of great, actually. <laughs> yeah, given the fact that you go to Panera's now, and it's just sort of like, you know, you're in the line, and it's like, all right, we'll let you know to, when to come get your food. Yeah, here's your buzzer. You know, we'll call you when you're ready. Yeah. Well, like uh, more of Moto Asia in downtown Disney when we were there. They're like, oh, we'll text you when you're ready. Just go walk around. This concept has become something the world has embraced, that our time is valuable. And, and yeah. as a retailer or a restaurant or that sort of thing, we agree that your time is valuable. So we'll let you know when we can service you. FastPass and FastPass Plus, I think, were some of the great operational research stories or ops research stories of the last uh, 20 years. Well, anyway, Justin, so there you go. That gives you, you know, basically the framework of how it came into the parks. I mean, there's additional fun stories about the further applications. It's just was kind of sad to watch as Bruce had left the company and they, Disney began to sort of finesse this and, and figure yeah. out what else we could do with this. And when they began to step away from, say, things like the paper fast passes, in fact, it's so funny. I actually have friends who built these giant collections of, of fast passes. And, oh, I have hundreds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but just the whole notion that they're on eBay, it's like, I, re- I need a Splash Mountain from, you know, from Tokyo. <laughs> but, but anyway, folks, so that's our first listener suggestion show. Len and I would love to be able to do some more of these. So if you like this one, 
let us know. And if you have suggestions for other shows, just tweet them in or send them via email and we'll eyeball them. The, those that we like, we'll do the research and, and toss them right back at you. Yeah, this is great. Thanks very much, Justin, for, uh, for thinking of this. Jim, before we do the close, mm-hmm. our second show for April will be on Animal Kingdom attractions? Yes, yes. That All right, is the pick. We're going to drill down into Cali River Rapids. So get those ponchos ready, folks. <laughs> Fantastic. All right, Jim, great job on this show. All right, you've been listening to the Unofficial Guide Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. We are produced, fabulously, I might add, by Aaron Adams. Please go on to iTunes and Stitcher and tell all your friends about us, and please let us know what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show. Take care, guys.